Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. I'm going to just adjust a little bit here. Did all the dads get a root beer? Now, I, I did. was there a bottle opener found? I mean, some dad has to have a bottle opener for... <laughs> is there... Did, did you get it opened? That's the next... Did, did you get an opener? Twi- they're twist-offs. Okay, we were prepared. Okay, good. If you didn't get a root beer praise band, uh, I know the ZNA and uh, uh, Kaylee will get you one. So raise your hand. If you didn't get a, a root beer, they'll, they'll take care of you. They have some young gals that are going to uh, help us out and, and take care of it. I'm going to read the scriptures to start us off today. One of my favorite stories. Um, one day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and they were calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? He that commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's wonderful to be today here on Father's Day to worship our Heavenly Father in his beautiful creation outdoors. You know, I'm especially excited today because my own father is here with me. My father, who served God by creating me, is here to worship with us today. You know, it's been a long time since my father and I have been able to worship together. You know, in 2016, a major storm or trial hit our lives My father had a heart attack in the summer of 2016, and shortly after that, in the fall and the winter, he suffered great physical and and mental loss and decline because of that. And he lost the ability to do the work that he loved, and he lost eventually his home and many of the freedoms that he enjoyed and, 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 and the active life that he enjoyed. And and relationally, there were losses. I had to make a lot of decision, hard decisions for his care that were not comfortable for either of us. In many ways, him and I have been in stormy seas together over the last five years. You know, we all face storms in life. Times where everything seems like it's spinning out of control. Times when things are in chaos. Times where relationally and financially or health-wise, the waves are coming and pounding on you. Sometimes it can be all three at once. And, and we can be like the disciples who are crying out, we are perishing. 
You know, as a country, this last year, all of our lives were tossed about in the winds and the waves of great change. It affected about every area of our lives over the last year, not just here, but worldwide, in Africa and Haiti and all the places of the world. It hit us like a storm. One moment we were going through life in our normal routines, and within a few weeks, everything changed on us. The winds of waves have been political, they've been social, they've been economic, they've been here in the church, they've been in our families. The family dynamic had changed. We started having to homeschool and, and shelter together, and, and, and some of us faced isolation from extended family. Some of us have not seen family members that we love for a long time. And today, it, it, it's starting to feel like the storm has subsided. And hopefully we are starting to see calmer days ahead. For my family today feels like a victory to be able to worship again with my father. And I I praise God for how he's bringing my father through this storm in his life and how he's healing him and and, and how we've been able to have conversations again and and do things together again like worship and, and other activities. But I can also now see how God used the storms that we both went through in 2016 to grow my faith. At a, at a time he needed to, to, he had to grow my faith so that I could face greater storms that were looming on my horizon, like the losing of my 15-year ministry partner and having to lead a church Through a pandemic, those storms are coming. We don't know when the storms of dramatic change will hit our lives. But the reality is they will come into all of our lives at some point. Faith is the only way not to drown in despair and fear when they do come. So today, we're going to look at God's word and learn how God actually uses storms and trials in life to grow our faith. So looking back at these verses in verse 22 in Luke 8, He says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And what I get for that verse is our good father sees benefit for us in storms and trials in our lives. If you're going to be an effective disciple of Jesus, you need to learn to be trained in the storms or trials of your life. You know, when I first became a Christian, This quickly became my favorite verse in the Bible. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. You know, the seas of my life were pretty rough when I first became a Christian. So that verse gave me a lot of hope that God had some purpose in all the turbulence. Honestly, most of the trials in my life were self-created back then because of my own sin. 
and, but I had hope that God was perfecting me even in my own mess. In all that manure, there had to be a pony somewhere because Jesus promised it. And eventually I learned not to stir up the wind and the waves of my own life so much. I want you to notice something in this text. Jesus, or God, was in the boat with them. It was also his idea or purpose to go across the lake in a boat. They could have walked. Jesus also made a promise that they would get to the other side. If you're new to faith, I want you to know Jesus chose to get in the boat with you. He has a purpose for the storms you're going through right now. And he promised that he will get you to the other side. The Apostle Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You know why I love this text so much? I love boats. Anybody else love boats? I'm always happiest when I'm sitting in a boat. I love the idea of Jesus sitting in a boat with me. I was thinking yesterday about all the wonderful experiences I've had with my dad in a boat. Now, they're far from comfortable and perfect. When I was little, my father made a handmade small boat we lovingly called the two-man casket. In Arizona, we cruised Canyon Lake, my dad and I, in the two-man casket. And in that, my dad taught me to face adversity. Moms often teach you how to be safe and cozy. Not my dad. He loved to test me and push me. In the two-man casket, I learned how to persevere. Bailing desperately while my dad paddled so we didn't sink. I learned to overcome, especially when we capsized in the cold water. We both overcame quickly as we crawled up the backside of the boat to flip it upright and get back in. And I learned that you could get through adversity and still have fun even when you're shivering cold if you would not give up and if you stayed together. When I was a teenager... My father had another boat called the Presumptuous. It was a 28-foot double-ended steel-hulled lifeboat. It had a cabin built on it with a wood-burning stove and a Willys Jeep engine. The boat looked and sounded like the African Queen, if you've ever seen that movie with Humphrey Bogart. And for a summer, we took adventures on it down the Columbia River in Oregon. And I was, at the time, 14, an athlete, full of muscles and no sense, not much more now. Spending time on the water that summer taught me a, a, a lot of much-needed humility. I was always trying to muscle the boat. My dad was yelling at me to get out of the way between the, the dock and the boat, and I was trying to push it around. And one day we were going through the river locks, and a barge started to come in, and our engine failed, and there was a 30-foot concrete wall, and I tried to grab onto a ladder that was on the wall and tried to pull the boat with my arms in, and my dad yelled at me, and so I grabbed a, a, a thick um, boat hook and hooked onto the wall with it. The, the boat hook was like two inches thick, 
you know, solid oak and, and tried to hold with my muscles on the wall. And the currents of the water ripped it from my hands. And, and the boat hook got between the, the, the steel hull of the boat and, and the wall and started shattering, splintering like it was a twig into three places. I could have been that twig. I could have been the one that snapped. Part of my dad's parenting was when he decided not to play it safe. But instead, he took me out on the water. And on the water, he taught me how to adapt to changing conditions, how to solve problems, and how to survive and overcome obstacles. And when I became overconfident, I learned how to understand my own limitations. And I learned to respect forces like water and waves, forces that were greater than me. You know, one of our modern idols today that I think limits our growth is this need for perpetual safety and security. Many people want to live their lives without risk, without trial, or without suffering. Jesus calls, calls us to follow him, and sometimes he calls us to follow him out into the deep where the fish are, as Peter learned. And sometimes he, he, he calls us to follow him out into the storm where we can truly see God's power at work. See, many just want a pleasure cruise all the time with a drink in their hands. Now, don't get me wrong. In boating, I've had some beautiful moments sitting on a deck and watching a calm sunset, having a nice cold drink. But honestly, I've grown the most and built more faith in God and more confidence in myself through the storms he took me through than in the sunsets. You know, many of Jesus' disciples were seasoned fishermen. They knew the perils of the lake they were traveling on. But they decided to go with him because they trusted in their teacher. But mostly they trusted in their own abilities to keep them safe on the water since they were the ones that were going to be piloting the boat. You know, many people seem confident in Jesus when they are still in control of their lives. They they, they were not singing back in those days when they got in the boat with Jesus. Jesus, take the rudder or the wheel. See, Jesus was the passenger. And so as they sailed, Jesus being the passenger, he fell asleep. Because he was exhausted. And, 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 and the windstorm came down on the lake, it says in verse 23, and they were filling with water and they were in danger. Now this lake was heart-shaped. It was about nine miles long and about seven miles wide. Think of a lake about the width of uh, Lake, or double the width of Lake Geneva, and a few miles longer. And this lake sat about 700 feet below sea level. It had mountains one ten thousand feet tall all around. And because of the high altitude of the mountains with cold air and the the warm air rising off the lake, um, it, 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 the 
it would create violent storms of, of very high winds, and they could whip up very quickly. And a, a small craft with high winds, you can be in trouble very quickly, even on a small lake. And, and I'm, I'm sure these expert fishermen were watching carefully before they even entered the boat and agreed to take the trip with Jesus. They, they would not want to risk their life or their livelihood because a carpenter said it was okay to cross a lake. They likely had more than one boat, probably two boats, about 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, which is a, a decent sized boat for a small lake in, you know, it, you know, they had a decent sized boat, but lakes can be tricky. You know, uh, many of you probably heard that song by Gordon Lightfoot, the Edmunds Fitzgerald. The Edmund Fitzgerald was a boat that was 729 feet long and 75 feet wide. And Lake Superior, in a matter of minutes, it was cracked in half, and it was steel. It was cracked in half and sunk to a 500-feet depth in winds that came up that were hurricane force that created 35-foot waves. I've been on Lake Michigan once where winds came out of the south and, and I didn't think I was going to make it. I, I've seen on a lake winds whip up and, 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 and th- this storm just caught these men by surprise and, and, a, and a boat that they were confident in. Um, but to Jesus, this was not a surprise. He knew the storm was coming. He led them into it. He was... The one in Mark's gospel who said, let's go to the other side. But he was also the one in Mark's gospel who said they would go to the other side. He promised it. He knew they would make it. And so while they were panicking, Jesus slept comfortably on his pillow in the back of the boat. He was so exhausted. He he had slept peacefully through this killer storm. This is amazing. This, this shows his humanity that the Son of God needed to sleep. But it also shows his deity that he had so much trust in his heavenly Father that he could sleep in, in the kind of chaos that was going on all around him in the face of certain death. If you've ever been in a storm in a lake, it would be almost impossible to sleep. You might ask, how, how can God sleep when his friends are in such peril? But there's another way to ask the question. How can his friends be in danger if Jesus is with them, whether he is sleeping or not? Jesus said in John 3.16, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Today, you may feel like God is sleeping because he does not appear to be working on your time schedule. You may feel God is sleeping because you are experiencing winds and waves of trouble in your life. But your own feelings or your present circumstances do not change his promise that you will make it to the other side. It does not change his power. Something bigger than your own power is there to change things. Your own feelings won't change them. 
Your fears can't change them. Your despair can't change them. More effort can't change them. Only God's promises can change the situation. Our, 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 our courage can't be based on circumstances or feelings or we will falter in our courage. Our courage has to be based on what God has said and what God has done. Friends, that is faith. I'm sure these experienced fishermen did everything they could think of first before they bothered Jesus to improve their situation. Maybe they attempted to change course. Maybe they attempted to point the bow into the wind. Maybe everybody was bailing with everything they could find. Maybe somebody tried to control things by beating themselves up, thinking we're so foolish to trust a fisherman to take us across a lake. Others were kicking themselves for that, thinking a carpenter? We should have walked. In their fear, and in their despair, and in their desperation, they start to come to Jesus. In Mark's gospel, he records, some say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Under trial, we can be tempted to say that God does not care, and even blame him for the circumstances we are in. Even when many times we have chosen them. In this case, Jesus had chosen the circumstances, though, that they are in. Luke records in verse 24, Master, Master, we are perishing. That word perishing is very strong in the Greek. It's the word apollomi. It means to be lost. It means to be ruined. It means to be made utterly useless. It's a metaphor meaning eternal misery in hell or to be cursed. For the disciples in this moment, in their thinking, they are not just caught in a natural phenomenon. They feel that they are utterly cursed by God, that God is punishing them. And sometimes under the trials and under the storms of life, that's exactly how we feel, that we are being punished by God. And and now they even use the word we. So they are including Jesus in what they are saying. So not are they, only are they accusing Jesus, God, of not caring, they're also accusing God of being cursed with them. In the natural world, the disciples were facing a great danger. But now, in the spiritual realm, they have fallen victim to an even greater danger. They are eternally facing a fatal danger, spiritual deception. Spiritual deception about the nature of God. Fear can be used as an acrostic for false evidence appearing real. They have falsely believed that the trials of their lives are punishment from God. They have falsely believed that God would curse them and that God would reject them. And that defies the true evidence about who God is. See, God is literally with them in the trial. God has led them into this storm. 
And he has done that for their benefit. God has purpose in this storm. The Bible says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's from Romans 8, 28. It's not to say that all things that happen to us in this life are good or feel good. This is a violent storm. It's dangerous and life-threatening, and they are not in a good situation. But still, they are well cared for in it. And God has an ultimate purpose for them in it, that they might grow in something more important, faith. We live in a world that operates on the basis of elementary principle of luck and fate. Most religious and philosophical systems are based on a system of cause and effect or luck or fate. If catastrophe comes upon you, it's because of your fate or your luck based on a random and cruel universe. Or it's because you have screwed up in some way and your deity is punishing you. And this is exactly how the disciples are thinking at this moment in this storm. But Romans 8.28 and the Bible throughout does not teach that at all. It does not teach elementary principle. It does not teach fate. Instead, it teaches providence. The biblical definition of providence is the guardianship and care provided by a benevolent and loving God. When Jesus came to this world, he did something new. He called God Father. Something new, appropriate for Father's Day. Just like my earthly father took me out in adventures to teach me and to train me about the, the power and the beauty and the wonder of God's creation. And through the trials that we went through on our adventures, my character was shaped as we traveled in the two-man casket and the Tortuga, which was the car that broke down as we traveled through the country. I learned to persevere and I, I learned to overcome and I learned to discover my limitations and grow up as a man. I learned about greater powers than myself. Jesus, God, as a loving father, takes his disciples into the storms of life to teach them about the power, the love, and the beauty, and the wonder of God, and to teach them to persevere in faith. Beloved, if you are God's child, it is impossible for you to be punished by him. That it opposes his nature. It opposes his will. It opposes his word. Hebrews twelve six says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastises every son he receives. The purpose of discipline is to train or teach for the benefit of that child or that student. Jesus was not punishing his disciples for taking them on this trip. He was enlightening them 
revealing to them who God truly was, that he was benevolent and that he was with him in trials and that they could trust his word even through a violent storm. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Perish, in that verse again, is that same Greek word, apollomy. Jesus came into the storms of our lives because God loves us and does not want us to be destroyed. Most of the world thinks things are random and fate. But God loves us and does not want us to be destroyed. Instead, God was willing to destroy and give up the most precious and most valuable thing in the universe. His own son to redeem us. He destroyed him on the cross. Jesus loves us enough allow his own body to be destroyed to keep us from destroying ourselves eternally in our own arrogance and pride so that we can learn about love because elementary principle actually feeds our pride. See, Jesus allows and takes us through storms and trials in our lives to discipline us that we might learn to rely on God and on him in faith. You know, there's times during this pandemic, and maybe you heard this, I know I did. I heard people, people that claim belief say, religious leaders say, God is punishing us. Anybody else hear that? Beloved, that's heresy, according to the Bible. That God is seeking to destroy his creation That's a false narrative about who God is. If a Christian is preaching God is punishing us to themselves or to others, they might not know him very well. For his word says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent him in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I understand emotionally, we all, when trials come into our lives, it's, it's easy and it's natural to feel punished and be deceived at first. You know, when my father first got sick, I remember crying out to God, why, why, why? Standing in a hospital, in a hallway, crying that out. For me, that was a question of doubt. Brought on by my fears. But as I spent time with Jesus in my boat, learning from Jesus in that storm, that question started to change. As I matured, it became what God? What God? What God am I supposed to learn from you in this storm? 
why is often a question where we blame God, we blame others, or we blame ourselves as victims of punishment. What is a question instead of a loved child trying to understand and grow? Knowing ultimately that the difficulty will produce lasting and good benefit. The latter fits the Bible narrative. The former is a deception of fate and victimhood. There is tremendous benefit that I have seen in myself and in others when we start to wrestle with the question, Lord, what do you want me to learn in this storm? Personally, I have seen God act in amazing ways to change my heart and make me less selfish and, and, and more loving. In storms of conflict, I am learning not to become bitter and resentful. We have a choice in life. We can become bitter and punish others, and, 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 or we can become better and love others even in storms. My understanding of God's faithfulness and of his power today is much greater because of the storms I've faced in life. Because he has become my refuge and my strength and my ever-present help in them. He has been teaching me my limits where I need to get involved and bail and paddle and when I just need to give up and give him the rudder. In the storms of life, my faith has grown in ways it would have never grown without the storm. Because in the darkness, I can see more clearly his light and his goodness. I think that's why Jesus led his own disciples into the storm that day. So that they might be undone. And so that they might fully see the power of God. And he awoke and he rebuked the winds and the raging waves. And they ceased and there was a calm. The Greek word here for rebuked is the same word used for exercising a demon. They'll land on a shore, and the first thing Jesus will do will exercise a demon from somebody, and the same word will be used. This storm was not just a random and cruel act of nature, fated to destroy the disciples. Satan has the power to influence nature. We see that in the book of Job. But we also see that that power is limited by God's own authority. God allowed for Satan to test Job's faith, to teach Job, but not to destroy Job. And so God had allowed this dark storm to display the light of his son to the disciples, to reveal or to teach them something about his supreme, awesome, and benevolent power. And Jesus says to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. 
And they marveled. And they said to one another, Who then is this? He even commands the winds and the water, and they obey him. What a question. Where is your faith? He asked a bunch of people who at this point had seen him heal a leper, which nobody does, raise a dead man, which I've never seen, heal a paralyzed man from birth, taught wisdom like nobody had ever taught to a bunch of really uber-religious people, taught, healed hundreds of people with just a word when he wasn't even in the room. But friends, true faith, is more than the knowledge of God's goodness, more than just seeing it happen in other people. It's the assurance and the reliance yourself on the goodness of God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. His disciples had to have their own assurance and experience with faith. Before this trip, the disciples knew about faith, But they had to gain real assurance themselves, their own convictions themselves, and believe in something they could not see and control. And after they saw what Jesus did, they became afraid. They became more afraid of what they could not see than what they could see. Now they had a true fear, a true fear of faith. You know how you get to be the, to the point you're not afraid of the storms of life? Have a greater fear. That's how your fears go away. Have a greater fear of God. The Bible says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9, 10. Fearing circumstances, they were bold enough to curse and blame the power that was in control of all circumstances of all of life because they believed more in fate and natural law than they did God. But now that they recognized that there was a sovereign, benevolent force in charge that they personally had disrespected They cry out in fear, who is this? They instantly recognize the one that was cuddled up on the floor in their boat and a couple words silenced a killer storm. And they troubled with wonder at his awesome power. And they realized, even though they had betrayed him, and cursed him, that he had still acted benevolently towards them. And they marveled. Who could this be? This is not the God they imagined. Other prophets had healed. Isaiah, the prophet, prayed for rain. And the God they knew of made it happen. But Jesus had simply spoke and instantly the winds and the waves obeyed him. Who? What kind of power 
slept in the boat with them. Was it the one that Psalm 147, 15 through 18 talks about? He sends his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls, hurls down crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his words and he melts them. He makes his winds blow and the waters flow. Oh, friends, the mystery of the incarnation is wonderful that Jesus could humanly sleep in their boat, tired from teaching all day, and at the same time be in authority over all of creation. Later, one of them would write in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of all nature, of, 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 of uh, exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus taught them some really valuable theology, some really valuable things in the turbulent waters of that storm. God was with them. He was for them. He was not against them. Fate did not rule their lives, creating fear. There was something greater, something more wonderful to fear, something more wonderful to be in awe of that would eliminate every fear in their life if they would just trust in it. Friends, what is the message that you're getting from the storms in your life? Is it a demonic one? One that tells you that God does not care? One that tells you that you are cursed and you are punished by God? Who told you that your trials in life were there because God did not love you? Who told you it was because he did not care? Who told you it was because you were cursed? Friends, that's a demonic voice. It's untrue. And it was meant to make you fear God because of a demonic lie called fate. God's word says this. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected by love. Today, will you receive the truth of his love for you, regardless of what storm you are going through in life? Jesus came not to destroy you, but to destroy your sin and to destroy your shame upon the cross. In his perfect love for you, God sacrificed his own son so that in his body, your sin and your shame, the things that really torment you could be condemned forever. Then Jesus was placed in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he walked out again on a beautiful morning, proving 
that his own perfect love could perfect us. That our sin had been destroyed. That the sting of death and punishment for sin had forever been removed. And that the enemy who lied to us has been rebuked and crushed beneath his feet. Beneath his feet. Beloved, why do you let the winds of fear and the waves of doubt still crush you inside, creating fear? Did you not hear what he said to the winds and the waves and they obeyed? Mark's gospel records it for us. He said, peace, be still. If winds and waves, inanimate objects without intelligence can obey him, can you? Beloved, you can have eternal peace with God. You just need to accept it by faith. Peace, be still. God loves you. It doesn't matter what kind of storm in life you are going with him right now. You are okay. And you can have peace knowing that he is God and that he loves you. And that ultimately, all things will work out for the good if you love him and are called according to his purpose. Peace. Be still and know that he is God. Turn to him now. Repent, which means turn to him. Turn from your fear, which is sin. Turn from your doubt, which is sin. And believe. Trust in him. Follow him. Set sail on a great adventure and learn faith. For faith that saves is not about security. We learn to trust going out into the deep and through the storms of life with him. And he promises never to leave us, nor forsake us. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. Father, we thank you for your truth that sets our hearts free. Father, rebuke the lies that enter our hearts and our minds and quiet our hearts. Father, let us turn and follow you wherever you lead, for you are good and gentle. Father, if there's anybody here that has not trusted in your Son and his power, to redeem them, may they turn today and ask for his forgiveness and for his mercy 
knowing that he has paid the full price for their sin and is good and gentle and will give them forgiveness. And he will calm their heart and make them new. Lord, do a mighty work through the power of your Holy Spirit today to settle the waves of fear and doubt in hearts and turn them to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like prayer, if you're going through a storm and you just want to be with somebody in prayer right now in your life, you want to commit to them, I'm here. love to pray with you. Sometimes you just need to be with somebody and pray. This commitment you need to make. Don't let your fears hold you back. Step out on the water. That's where he is.